you remain standing and take out your Bible and in your pew Bible there, that red book, and turn to Matthew, the second chapter. If you're visiting, it's near the back of your book. We start numbering it again on page 2 in the New Testament. Matthew 2 in verses 1 through 6. One of the most famous politicians of all times has an encounter with God before the birth of his son in the announcement. And King Herod, a very complicated person, responds. Together as God's people, let's read verses 1 through 6 together out loud. And as you read, listen carefully, you're reading God's word. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. The sins of reading of God's holy word, heaven and earth will pass away, but that never will. Herod is a very complicated figure. He may have been one of the most ruthless kings who ever lived, and he may have been one of the most generous at the same time. Herod, who knows exactly what was going on in his head, he had a bit of an ego, we might say. And this morning, our drama department, we're looking at the characters of Christmas and the character qualities in their lives, for good or bad. And I've asked the drama team, what would it be like if we could hear Herod? And this morning, we get a little insight into that. Enough. Greetings, citizens. You may worship me. Thank you. <laughs> For those of you visiting here in our great kingdom, I am the wise and benevolent good King Herod. There has never been another king as great nor as grand as I, and nor will there ever be. For my list of accomplishments is so long that sometimes it bores even me. <laughs> I'm certain that most of you have visited my fair kingdom along the Mediterranean coast. No? Have you? Have you? No one. Not one soul. What is wrong with you people? I have spared no labor, no expense. I have imported the finest marble and covered the entire city in it. No ship sailing by could ever miss my shimmering diamond by the sea. It is an enduring testimony to my greatness. And by all means, please, do go. Of course, the castle you're standing in now is the most beautiful and magnificent in all of Judea, and dare I say, the world. For I have built it on this hill overlooking the city of Bethlehem, so that the peasants of that insignificant little province can look up and take comfort in knowing that their true king 
He's looking down on them. Hmm. Commoners like yourself really have no idea how difficult it is to be king. I have discovered that my sons were plotting to overthrow me. And so I had to have them killed. You cannot know the depth to which that saddened me. And my wife, my poor, beautiful wife, alas, she was so lovely to look upon. No man could pass without desiring her. So I had to have her killed. But now, now I miss her. And it seems that almost every night I walk through the halls of my castle calling out her name and she won't answer. And it just makes me feel so melancholy. Hmm. Now, I hear there is yet another threat to my throne. Some wise men from the east have come here, traveling through our fair city, claiming that a great star has led them here. They were searching for a king, a king chosen by God. I told them, I thought it was obvious. I am the one chosen by the gods. There is nothing within a four days journey that I cannot control with an iron fist. The gods of Rome have placed me here. No man shall ever remove me. But these wise men said that their king was to be born in the city of David. In my little town of Bethlehem. And oh, how that saddened me, for now I must kill all the boys under two in the entire region. I tell you truly, the mantle of greatness weighs heavily upon my shoulders. The unspeakable things that I must do to retain what is rightfully mine. <sighs> you peasants should be so thankful that the gods have not placed such a burden on you. Oh. <sighs> By the gods, I think I am once again feeling melancholy. Yes. All right, then. I shall walk the halls of my castle and call up my wife's name. Please, carry on. Worship me. All of you. All of you. does such a great job. He got the highest compliment after the last service. Some older lady said, I don't like you. Uh, maybe we can go, but let's stone him and really say it was a great performance. That was wonderful. Herod was, as I said, perhaps one of the most famous politicians outside of Pilate who ever lived. And interestingly enough, because they both crossed paths with Jesus. Herod was a remarkable man, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was, of course, he died after trying to destroy the children when Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt. The Herod that Jesus stood before, Herod Antipater, was his son that he had to stand before. But Herod the Great was great for a lot of reasons. He was maybe one of the greatest builders that the ancient world had ever seen. He was a shrewd maneuver politically in so many ways. And yet, the character quality that stopped all of this was this toxic stuff called envy. And for all of us this morning, if we don't want to become Herod, Herod literally become a paranoid, filled with anger and suspicion of everybody because of this thing called coveting and envy. And ironically... The person that could have brought the healing to this waste in his life was the Jesus he was trying to kill. And Bel Air, as we gather this morning, 
on this Sunday of Advent as we gather together, we are here about grace. The Reformed tradition, any of you visiting the Reformed is just basically a theology of understanding the scriptures and a particular heritage. One of the great tenets of the faith is sola gratia, Latin for by grace alone. And grace in three ways. Grace, I believe, Herod could have had the first of all we need to have to accept who we are. And second of all, the grace to accept who others are. And finally, the grace to accept who Jesus is. And when we open up the spigot of God's grace into our life in that way, life is unbelievable. If you have your Bible, let's turn back and look at this a little closer. Turn with me over to Matthew, the second chapter. The grace to accept who we are. You remember that Matthew, for a living, he works for the IRS. He's a tax collector for Rome, and he meets Jesus, and he changes his name. Uh, people change their name when they encounter God in the Scriptures. Do you know that? A whole new identity. And Matthew, God's gift versus when it was Levi. And here he records, as a Jew writing to Jews, the fulfillment of all the prophecies. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi, or wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? Herod is a fascinating study. He was a half-Jew. His One of his parents was an Idumean, a Gentile, and so Israel never totally accepted him. And perhaps some of the building works he did, he was trying to get the nation to accept him as king. He was a Jew, but a half-Jew. He was... He was in the lineage to come to become king, but Rome agreed with having him there, and he was a puppet of Rome. He would maneuver whatever way he wanted. When first when he thought Mark Anthony was going to make it, he put up something called the Antonio Fortress, which Jesus stood in and was trial in. And then when Anthony was out of there, he switched to the other side. Very quick maneuver. He built some of the wonders of the ancient world. What... Herod here in our drama was speaking of, of Caesarea Philippi, an order of King Caesar put there along the Mediterranean coast. Philippi is actually up further north. The Caesarea on the sea coast was beautiful. Do you know when you see pictures of Jerusalem, the western wall, the wailing wall, where all the Orthodox Jews are praying and looking to the Messiah? That is the foundational gutter of the temple mound of the temple's of Herod's temple that was up there. It was huge. It impressed anybody in the world that came to see it. The Masada Fortress, where people fled during the revolt under 70 AD, that was simply his winter getaway. And they stayed there two years holding out against the Romans. He was great. He could be so generous. Do you know at one time, as the king, he suspended taxes for two years? Maybe that'll catch on. I don't know. That's a neat idea, but... Do you know another time when it was a drought hit in 30 B.C., he was so generous, he dipped in and he melted down some of his own gold to feed the people when he didn't have to? He could be incredibly generous. Herod's flaw, and all of us have this potential, I pray none of us have it this deep in us, was this insane jealousy. He coveted and envied anybody that he thought was more of a success than him. And the older he got, the worse it got. He had his mother-in-law put to death. Well, I won't say anything on uh, that. Uh, but he was an evil man anyway. And he, uh, no, 
just kidding, just kidding, and I'll get letters on that. Uh, his son, his oldest son, Antipater, that he, when he got old enough, he heard there might be a revolt, that he'd be a great king, so he had him executed. He had his second son, Alexander, put to death. Aristobulus, on his 18th birthday, this is his son. That people said he's going to be such a great king, he brought him in, gave him a feast, and had him executed. His wife, Mariamne, which he was saying was perhaps one of the most beautiful women of the ancient world, was so beautiful, he thought she could never be faithful. He had her killed, and later, Josephus says that he would walk the halls of his tower saying, Mariamne, Mariamne, where are you? He knew that on the day he died... Nobody would cry, so he had arranged 70 of the top leadership of Israel were executed that day, so there would be tears at his death. Caesar Augustus said it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son, because as a Jew he wouldn't eat pork. (laughs) This is the one that the wise men, I love the understatement of the Bible, come riding up and says, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And the Bible says, and Herod was bothered. (laughs) And all Jerusalem with him. Herod lacked this grace to just simply accept who he was. And my brothers and sisters and my friends, the grace of Christ is, it's one thing to be forgiven by God. Forgiven is where we won't pay for all the stupid sins we've done. It's wiped out. Not a little bit, not a portion, never. But there's another beautiful side of grace. We're accepted. If somebody says to you, I forgive you for what you've done, that's beautiful. But it's another thing when they simply accept you. And a lot of times we live with this chronic not good enoughness. You know, we're just not good enough, whether it was from our parents or our friends or just our own wacky thinking. And we think we've got to keep achieving more and more. I've had the privilege of knowing a lot of very successful people. And I want to tell you, in the quietness, when they confess to me in their prayer lives, the more successful they are, the biggest fear is, will people find out I'm not that person? The more degrees, the more awards, the more applause, there's this haunting question. And some of these people are are nationally known. And inside, they're just little children. There are others that are so successful, they're so beyond their peers, they're trying to compete with history. You imagine that pain? And yet inside the question is, do they have the grace just to accept who they are? And I believe a lot of this inability to accept is why there's so much anger. Have you noticed, is this not the age of rage? Are people not in a bad mood all the time? My goodness, I mean, and if... If you're bored this week, see how long it takes to tick people off. One insult can do it. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. I told a great story of anger. The question is, anger in itself is not a sin. Jesus was angry. The question is what we are angry over and how we respond. My favorite story of Christmas anger. A gentleman told me he was waiting in line at the post office. True story. And it was like an hour and a half, two hours, and there was some sweet old lady up in front of him waiting in line. And... She finally got up there and waited all this time and went over and said, next. And, the, you know, the mail clerk, he was just tired and in a bad mood, you could tell. And he says, what do you want? She said, I want $10 worth of stamps. And she took out her money and he took the sheet of stamps and he slid it. And he didn't mean to, but it shot past her onto the floor. And he looked at her like, well. And so she went over and she slowly 
picked up the stamps and laid her $10 bill down and walked out. Isn't that great? I'm not advocating that necessarily. Anger is not wrong. It's how we handle anger in these areas. Jesus was angry. But notice he was never angry one time at what people did to him. Do you know what anger shows? Your values. This week, I pray that something happens to you that will tick you off. Pastor, I pray that twice for you. Thank you. And I'll tell you the reason why. Is when you get mad this next week, I want you to put your pulse, take it on your values and say, what does this show me about what's important to me? What you get mad about will show you your values in a nanosecond. What you think is threatened. I believe at times if you're not angry, you're in sin. I think if you stand and you look at injustice and oppression and evil and you just go, well, live and let live, that's a moral coma. Abraham Lincoln one time said, as the first time he ever saw a real slave sale, mothers and daughters and husbands torn apart and the weeping and sold as animals, he said he was so angry, if I get a chance, I'm going to hit this thing hard. Jesus, you want to get the hair up on Jesus' neck? Treat the church like a business. Have people come in and just use them. He said, this is my father's house. He was enraged. Or when they wouldn't let him heal people on the Sabbath. So anger itself isn't wrong. It says, be angry, Paul does in Ephesians, but sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I believe the grace of self-acceptance sometimes frees us from this. You know, we're not all the time going to be who we want to be, but we can be incredible people. True story of a little boy who wanted to be in the choir so bad. He went to church all the time, and he's like uh, me, just didn't have a voice, but he loved to sing. And, and the hardest thing in the world, I'm sure, for the band as well as for Elmer with the choirs, people that want to sing, and you don't know, do you love the individual or do you want to spare the congregation from pain, you know? And, and he let him sing for a little bit, and he sent Tony home. He said, you know, it's just not going to work. We'll find something else. And he went home totally depressed. And his father was a craftsman, and he found kind of a therapy in working. And Tony's name is Anthony, and Anthony's last name is Stradivarius. He didn't make a bad violin. But, you know, his heart's desire was to sing. And yet he found out that God had given him another gift in that way. And sometimes there are things we want to do, and I want to tell you, part of growing in grace is accepting we have strengths, and there's some things we can't. And this is part of just spiritual development. You know a little baby, it's called infantile narcissism. A little baby thinks they're the center of the universe. When they scream, you know, ah, they're hungry, you know, this blob shows up, mom, and takes care of them. And then they're wet, and they scream, ah, mom shows up. And if they're just bored, they yell. Wouldn't that be great? Ah, you know, and... Somebody shows up, and then one day, mom uses the big N-word. The baby wants something, and mom says, no. And the child goes, no, to moi? And, and at that moment, this rage comes out, and it's a loss of omnipotence. It's not a loss of self-love. It's a loss of control. And all of us in here, if we've grown in Christ, we've learned, you know what? You cannot control life. Deal with it. And a lot of people will throw temper fits throughout life because we do not get what we want. And part of God's grace is to learn how to accept who we are and to accept who others are. 
Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. I'm not saying accept people in their sinful state. If you love somebody and they go, I think I have cancer, you don't go, cool. You know, you try to help them. If somebody says, I have a disease, you, you try to get rid of that disease. If somebody's living a life far away from the Lord, you don't just accept them in their sin, but you accept them. And you can thread that needle with God's grace. Here's the insidiousness of envy versus selfishness. Self-centeredness is where I want everything. Herod had this sickening thing that we all have called envy and coveting. It's not that he wanted it as much as he wanted others not to have it. I mean, how lame is that thinking? And I have it all the time, and so do you. It's not so much that, well, I wish I had that. It's how come they get the breaks? Coveting, and that's what we have to find out. We're not in competition with each other. That's why the scriptures tell us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You want to heal your life? Get out of it. You want to heal your life? Start thinking of how to take care of others. It's a good thing, you know, and we're not in competition with each other. This is not a race between each other. Do churches ever get competitive with each other? Oh, my goodness. And we're not in a competition with other churches. And Bel Air, our mission is, yeah, as we continue to grow here, but every church close to us in the valley and on the west side that's preaching the gospel, I want to have racked and packed and stacked and overflowing. There's a city out here that we need each other. We're not in competition with them. Do pastors ever get jealous of each other? Oh, man. Are we an insecure lot or what? I confess to you, one of the times, check out my anger, I was a... Greeting people in one of the churches at afterwards, and I had just done an eight-week series on prayer, and somebody came up and handed me a stack of cassette tapes and said, from another pastor, going, "This is a real series on prayer." <laughs> I said, "Well, God bless you. May you go blind today, you know." And uh, <laughs> well, so the guy got why? Why did I care? Well, because I'm insecure, like you, you know. And this question of envying and coveting. It's so crazy. And yet when you let God's grace come in to accept not only where, but to accept others. This insanity that we think if I tear down your house, somehow that builds mine up. That's evil. That's out of hell. And it's insane. I should be building your house up, your life up. It doesn't affect mine, except it makes it better. Herod had this inability to let go. And so when later the Magi, when he found out they had been tricked, the wise men, and they worshipped Christ, and they went on, he went and he killed everybody two years old and younger. I could stand up here and I could read you a list of people of what envy and coveting, how it destroyed not the people they coveted, but their own lives. Xenophon, the, I believe it was the Greek philosopher who first told the story of the friends who were in a contest, a race in a little town in Greece, and The one friend won. They both came in so close and they loved each other originally. But the one who won was the winner. And the second one couldn't see he had done great, but just that he had lost. And the town erected a statue in honor of his friend who was the winner. And every time he walked by, that rage grew within him. And so at night he started to chisel away at the base of the statue so that it would fall. And one night he chiseled too much and it fell over on him and killed him. 
And you know, when we are out there trying to chisel away other people's lives, you've got to be very, very careful because it will really fall down on all of us. This ability to accept who we are really comes from this ability to accept who Jesus is. His Herod is in all the power that he has of the king of Judah and with Rome's might behind him and looking at all the power and the wealth he had and over in this little hick town called Bethlehem that would make Barstow look like New York City. <laughs> Probably get letters from people from Barstow on that, but just a tiny little town out there and in the smell of a barn of urine and manure was born the king. And then Herod thought he had to stop him. And when you and I realize this is not some nice story, Jesus is alive. This is a very dangerous thing. And he is alive. And I praise the Lord for so many of us last week that got to pray with some of you and their lives. Some of that I've called this past week have just been transformed. The the power of this resurrected Christ. And when we have this grace to accept him and let him be the Lord of our life. And say, Lord, I don't need to control things. I certainly don't need to control others. I just need to respond to you. The power that is released. And the joy that is released there. Let me ask you. Are you ticked off at life? If there are some things that don't anger you when you wake up and you read the paper and look at the TV, you've had a lobotomy. There are some things that should anger you. There are some things that you should say, that is unbelievable. But, how we respond to that anger. What ticks you off? Do you think you need to prove to the world? Do I think I need to prove to the world how okay we are? Or do we have the grace to accept who we are with our own limitations and the beauty? And you know, maybe this. Maybe we need to learn to accept our acceptance. That Christ has not only forgiven us, He accepts us. And so we can accept others. And above all, to accept that child in a manger who he is, the Lord of lords and King of kings. And as we give away our life, in the end, we find out that we save it. Amen? Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I thank you that you have called us to live an honest life with you. And God, I thank you that you know that we have many things in our life that wound us and hurt us. And Lord, that anger in itself is not wrong. But God, it's how we let the infection of us trying to control things. That's what's destructive. Lord, I pray for any of us in this room that, Lord, if we've had somebody that wounded us or we feel that, Lord, you let life betray us, that, Lord, right now the healing of this risen Savior could take that away. Lord, I pray that we'd learn to accept others with all their flaws as we accept ourselves. And, Lord, we invite you to come and may this be the greatest advent we've ever had. Jesus, someday you're going to come back very soon and we're going to be in front of you. Maybe for us all together, maybe for us individually. And in the twinkling of an eye, the only thing that will matter is how much we've let you love through us. Come, Lord, do that. For your sake we pray. Amen.